May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Most of you know that the first story in the Bible is is the creation story. It's a very well-known story. Even people who've maybe never cracked a Bible open in their lives, in many cases, have heard of it. This well-known first story of the Bible begins, the Bible, with the words in the beginning, and then proceeds to talk about those well-known seven days of creation, each of which begins with God saying something like, let there be this, and then there this is, just like that, and then God says, let there be that, and then there that is, just like that, until finally comes the sixth day, and in the morning God says, let there be animals, and just like that, there they are, and then finally after lunch, God says, let there be people, and then there they are. And every single time when what God said, what God desired into being, came into being just by being spoken into being, what God said to God's self was, this is good. Indeed, when God was all done, what God said was, this is very good. The story ends with God on the seventh day resting from God's labors, presumably because even God isn't meant to be working all the time, presumably, too, because creation isn't everything it was created to be until it is rested in, enjoyed. And that is the first story in the Bible, the seven days of creation, after which comes the second story in the Bible, which, as it turns out, is another creation story. A second creation story, which for a number of reasons, and we can discuss those some other time, but seems almost just about certainly to have been written by someone other than who wrote the first one. The second creation story is the also very well-known story of a man and a woman. They are not yet named here at the very beginning. They're just a man and a woman. It's actually a few chapters down the road that they are called Adam and Eve in a garden in a place called Eden. And whereas the Bible's first creation story is, I don't know, I want to say majestically poetically cosmic, God creating the entire universe day by day, stanza by stanza, just by saying a word. Who knows, maybe one time he said the word, bang. The second creation story, on the other hand, is not poetically and majestically cosmic, but rather, I don't know, I want to say intimately and gently tender. God creating the man For example, just by molding some dirt with God's hands, presumably getting some dirt under God's nails and then breathing life into the molded dirt and then later creating the woman from one of the breathing dirt's ribs. The second creation story, in its unique way, God playing in the dirt makes clear the point that we humans not only come from God's word or from God's hand, we also come from God's earth. We are of the earth. We are related to the earth. 
Indeed, the Hebrew word for man, not as a uh, capitalized proper name, which it will be later, but, but just as a generic word, not capitalized, just meaning what it means. The Hebrew word for man is the word Adam, Adam. And the Hebrew word for earth or dirt is the word Adama, which led one scholar I heard once to say that if he were translating the second creation story, he'd want to make that play on words known by translating it something like this, out of the dirt, the Adama, God created a dirtling, an Adam. Both stories, each in their own way, also make clear that we dirtlings were created to care for the dirt. We earthlings are to care for the earth. The first story making that clear by observing that we were created in the image of God, which means a number of things, but one of the things it surely means is that we are given the God-given purpose of representing the very good desires of God for God's creation. The second story makes the point by observing that after God planted a garden in a place called Eden, God told the Adam he had created from the Adama not only to enjoy the garden by walking in it, but also to know the joy of caring for it. The Adam, in other words, it turns out, was first thing out of the dirt told that he was to be creation's green committee. If you try to write a science book on the basis of these two creation stories, it's not hard to find a few things that actually do rather rhyme with science, as for example, the fact that we humans scientifically in some way are of the soil and related to the soil and will return to the soil, and also the fact that biblically and scientifically I think we agree that living creatures swarmed in the waters before they swarmed in the land, but that said, if you try to write a science book from these two stories, you either have to have to blind yourself um, to the fact or somehow deal with the fact that when it comes to a number of what you would call supposedly scientific or historical details, the push come to shove truth is these stories don't agree with each other on a number of those kinds of details. Many examples, perhaps one of the clearest, is that in Genesis 1, on the sixth day, God creates humans, animals, and then God creates humans, men and women, both at the same time, and seemingly a bunch of them, not just two. In Genesis 2, on the other hand, in the garden, first God creates a man, and then God creates animals as companions for the man, and then finally, at last, God creates a woman with the observation that part of what it means most deeply to be human is to know not just divine but also human love. I personally cherish the fact that when it comes to the details that we would call of the scientific or historical variety, these two stories don't agree about everything. For to me, that is the Bible's own clear way of clearly telling me not to ask these stories to be my science book but rather to be stories that speak to, that, that proclaim deeper truths, truths in many cases outside the realm of, maybe beyond the realm of science, including, for example, the truth that all that exists, however it was, 
that it scientifically and precisely exactly happened, happened for a reason. And the reason is God. The universe, in other words, the Bible clearly says, is not a cosmic coincidence. By the way, it also says that neither are you. And the truth, too, that no matter what science and humans can explain about the earth or extract from the earth or do with the earth or drill or frack out of the earth, our most abiding charge is to care for the earth. And the truth, too, that humans cannot fully be the humans they were created to be in isolation. Many of us learned this these last 15, 16, 17 months. We were grateful for technology, but something was missing. Humans can only fully be the humans they were created to be in the life-giving and life-affirming relationships with the earth and its creatures, with others, and with God. The second creation story, the one that we read the final part of today, is the one that tells us that to be truly human is also to know and respect and live within some human boundaries and limitations, which is to say to not be God, but to be whom God creates us to be, which the second story defines by saying that there was one tree in the garden, a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whose fruit the man and the woman were not to eat. At least so said God the Creator. At which point the story goes on to tell us that for whatever is the reason, it does not give us a reason, but for whatever is the reason, there are in God's creation voices that speak of desires that are not the desires of God, speak of a will that is not the will of God. Those voices, the will of not God, is spoken first in Genesis 3 by a serpent who at this point seems to be a snake-like creature that can walk and talk, which sounds awfully odd, although I'll tell you what, my dog talks to me every single day. The serpent here, by the way, is not specifically referred to as Satan. In fact, Satan is not introduced by name till well into the Old Testament, but is rather just a talking serpent, representing, I think, not only Satan, whom Scripture will introduce later, but representing also all voices, some on a spiritual level, some on a personal level, some around me, some within me, all of them voices which seek to entice, to tempt, to seduce in the direction of the desires of not God. And why do those exist, those serpentine voices exist in God's creation? Like I said, it doesn't say. I say, which means you can disagree with me, this is just Roger talking, I say it's because, as Scripture will teach us later, God is love, and therefore the very goodest thing God can create is love, which would mean that to be created in the fullest possible image of God would be to love. 
But true love can only exist in mutuality. It cannot exist by coercion, which is to say that the only way you can possibly truly love and truly lovingly obey is if there truly exists the possibility of not doing so. Unfortunately, in pursuing the will of not God, God says, God has warned, you will not find life but death. Which, of course, is a truth you can see affirmed every single time you check your news feed. Unfortunately, too, when presented with the opportunity, and that is how it was presented, it's, it's how sin was presented, not as sin, but as an opportunity. Something beautiful, something to be oh so desired, something so very tasty, something so very good. And presented with this wonderful opportunity, the woman and then the man both bit. At which point they both were immediately ashamed of their nakedness and made loincloths for themselves. At which point they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, coming to walk with them in the garden and to talk with them in the garden and presumably to tell them in the garden that they were his own, a beautiful thing. However, the man and the woman no longer thought it sounded beautiful. They thought the presence of the Lord God coming to walk and talk with them was threatening. And so they tried to hide. Oh, my goodness, the truths this story preaches. Like, for example, the truth that the will of not God, which is to say the will of not love, which is to say sin, is so often spoken of as something attractive, something beautiful to be desired, but it's a ruse, it's a lie. For while the first bite just initially may indeed be tasty, it quickly sours as its beauty proves to be only an illusion. And the result, in one way or another, is first that we cover ourselves in the presence of each other with all kinds of different loin cloths, all kinds of different masks, which, of course, work to a degree, except the depth of intimacy is the first casualty. And then, too, ashamed of what we are and who we are and what we've done and what we've left undone, we, in one way or another, hide from God, which, of course, doesn't work presence of God is something that cannot be hidden from. And in the presence of God, which the man and woman could not hide from, the truth came tumbling out, but not truly. The truth came tumbling out, rather, as it so often does, wrapped in the loincloth of blame. The man blames the woman and also blames God for creating her and giving her to him. The woman blames the serpent whom, of course, God had also created, and the serpent. Well, the serpent isn't giving any, any speaking parts at this time. I think it's because the serpent at this point is just enjoying the relational and spiritual carnage he has just introduced to the story. Because, of course, if the will of God is, by definition, love, then the will of not God, by definition, is the destruction of all things loving. So the serpent, I think, is just sitting back and enjoying this. It is God who announces the truth that indeed sin does have consequences, painful ones, destructive ones. 
experienced by the man and the woman and their relationship with each other and the earth and their relationship with it. The phrase climate change is not used in other words, but that human sin has implications for the earth is not new news. It just took climate science this long to catch up to Genesis 3. But what about the most important relationship of all? Not their relationship with each other or their relationship with the earth, but their relationship with God, the creator of each other and of the earth. To the serpent, God says, because you have done this, I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Early on in the Christian church, the mention of the offspring of the woman who would strike a mortal blow to the head of the serpent was seen as pointing to her offspring who was Jesus and to the tempter he would face and to the death he would die and to the victory he would win. Which leads some to observe, and I think I'm in this camp, that Genesis 3.15 is therefore actually the first place in the Bible where the gospel is preached. Which would mean that on that first Easter morning, when we read that Jesus walked and talked with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he opened the words of Scripture, and at that point Scripture was the Old Testament, that's all the Scripture there was, he opened the words of Scripture so that they could see all the places in Scripture that had pointed all along to him and to his death and his resurrection. This story, this so deeply true story, might well have been the first one, he told them, by way of telling him the deepest truth there is, that being the truth that though sin and the pain and death that accompany it and follow it, though sin and all of those things wrote themselves into the human story, even back at the very beginning chapters of the story, and though sin and pain and death would be continued to be written into the story in every chapter that was ever written here on earth, sin and the pain and death that accompany it and follow it will not be the author of the final chapter to be written. For the final chapter rather will be written by love, which neither sin nor death will in the end have the power to tear you from. For God, the Creator, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who took on sin and death and the tempter all along the way. But what he didn't do was take any of them as the final answer. For he himself, and through him, for us. Which means we don't take sin and death and the wiles of the tempter as final answers either. Rather, as sinners loved and forgiven, we love and forgive one another. And love being precisely what is the image of God the Creator, we love the Creator's earth too. And as we do so, well, perhaps at times we might hear the whisper of her forgiving us as well. And it is good. Indeed, it is very good.
Indeed, because it is love, it is very, 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 very good. For God is love. Amen.